So Palm Sunday is next week, and uh, I'm not preaching on Palm Sunday. So because of that, I originally thought I would be preaching on Palm Sunday, but since uh, I've got outpatient surgery, I won't be preaching on Palm Sunday. Uh, so Robert Thurman's coming up, but I, I, if I were preaching on Palm Sunday, what I was on track to do would be, my text would be Isaiah chapter 52, which is found on page 613 in your Bible. So that's where we're going to be. This is my close to my Palm Sunday message a week early. I think Robert Thurman will probably do something that's very, probably right out of the gospel, one of the gospel narratives regarding Palm Sunday. But this is uh, Palm Sunday in Isaiah, and Isaiah chapter 52. So we're skipping last week, the last two weeks we've been in 45, we've done chapters uh, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, now we're jumping ahead to Isaiah chapter 52. It's divided into two very distinct sections, two very distinct sections. We're going to do the first, not the second, at least this morning. The first section is in verses 1 to 12, which I think are very appropriate for Palm Sunday. The second section are just the last three verses, 13, 14, and 15, which really belong with chapter 53. So that will be our Good Friday text. We'll look at that on Good Friday, uh, the end of 52, and then chapter 53. I'm sure it won't be in any sort of detail. There won't be time for that. But this is uh, the first 12 verses in advance. Let me uh, start with talking about Centric circles of interpretation and application. In other words, in Isaiah, as we read these texts, uh, whatever chapter we're in, how are we to understand it? How do we interpret the Bible? This is a, this is just a good tool, no matter where you're at in the Bible. Because I grew up, I, not exactly, my spiritual mentor when I was in college, and then when I lived in Ohio for a few years before marriage, my spiritual mentor, one of his mantras, one of the things he taught me is all of the Bible is for you. It's not all to you. It's not all to you. So it's all for you. It's all for your benefit. But just because God gave a promise to a particular people at a particular time, in a particular place, that doesn't mean it's my promise. God didn't promise me I'm going to have a child when I'm 100 years old. And I'm okay with that. Uh, but he didn't make me that promise. Now, that's for my benefit. It's for my learning. I learned something about the character of God. I learned something about uh, uh, God who keeps his promises, and God has a plan of redemption he's working out, but that's for me, not to me. So let me show you these concentric, concentric circles of interpretation. When we're going through Isaiah, here's what we need to labor to do. It looks something like this. We're going to start with the first circle, the heart of looking at whatever Isaiah has to say. It pertains to Israel. It pertains to Jerusalem slash Zion. That's the same place when Isaiah refers to Zion. He's talking about Jerusalem, same city, same place, and Judah. Israel is a term used in Isaiah 102 verses. Uh, some verses, if they're, if he uses it twice, I didn't count it twice. Uh, that's too much work. But 102 times he refers to Israel, which is kind of interesting because Isaiah is a prophet in the southern nation of Judah. But I think Isaiah's vision is meant for Israel as a whole and not just the southern nation of Judah, though he mentions Judah 31 times. 
He mentions Jerusalem or Zion 87 times. So more than 100 times Israel, 87 Jerusalem or Zion, and 30 whatever I told you for Judah. What Isaiah, a word Isaiah never uses, I'm going to say he didn't know the word. A word that Isaiah never uses is the word Jew or Jews. Because initially, I thought when we talk about these concentric circles of, of interpretation, first of all, the question would be, what does it mean to the Jews? And that's a fair, I'm not saying it's completely out of bounds, but it's not a word that Isaiah used. Isaiah would say, what does it mean to Israel? What does it mean to the Israelites? What does it mean to Jerusalem? What does it mean to Judah? Now, this is going to be a very interesting trivia question. Uh, I'm working up to it. If you, If somebody can get it, uh, you will get, you won't get any bonus points in heaven because you're blowing it now, but I will certainly be impressed. The word Jew or Jews is only found in seven books of the Old Testament. Three of those books, it's used one time. One book, it's used twice. Two books, it's used eight times. There is one book in the Old Testament where the word is used 56 times, 56 times, does anybody want to venture a guess what book of the Old Testament, more than all the other books put together and then some, what book of the Old Testament uses the book 56 times? Esther's right. You lost points in heaven, but that is impressive. (laughs) I never would have guessed that. Esther uses the word Jew or Jews 56 times. Did Did Michelle get that too? Oh, and now that I've brought it to your attention, you lost your points in heaven as well. Okay, so I just thought that was fascinating. I think there's kind of some subtle reasons for why uh, the word Jew and Jews doesn't play out like that in the Old Testament. But uh, I found that rather shocking myself. It's the book of Esther. So let's go back to uh, this first circle of interpretation and application. It pertains to Israel, Jerusalem, and Judah. We're going to start with Isaiah's generation. What does it mean to the people that Isaiah is talking to? It means something to them. we got to start with that. And when you're reading through Isaiah, it's like, what does it mean to the people he's speaking to and writing to? Secondly, what does it mean to the future exiles who are returning from Babylon? Isaiah is not living at that point. That's like 150 years in the future. But it's not far in the future, it's the near future. So what Isaiah is writing in this prophecy pertains to the Jews he's looking at. It pertains to the Jews 150 years from now, which will come back from Babylonian exile. And it also pertains to eschatological Israel, future Israel, not near future, ultimate future, full and final future Israel. I think what Isaiah has to say in this prophecy, because it goes all the way up to a new heaven and a new earth. What Isaiah has to say pertains to near Israel, but also an ultimate future Israel. It pertains to them as well. So that's the first circle of interpretation. The second circle pertains to the redeemed people of God, the church. And when we're talking about what does it mean for the church? What does it mean Jews and Gentiles who are baptized by the Holy Spirit beginning at Pentecost into this body, this entity called the church? What does it mean for them? First of all, it means something collectively. In fact, that's more important than what it means to me. Because most of what the, 
is written to the church is not written to what does it mean to me, it's what does it mean to, to us as the community, the people of God. Where people in, um, in Bible studies that sometimes aren't as productive as they might be, they get hung up on, well, I'll tell you what it means to me, or this is the promise for me. And, and there's some truth in that, but that's kind of several steps removed. Isaiah is written first to Israel. It's written to the church as a whole. And then I can ask the question, what does it mean to me as an individual believer? And then the third circle is this circle. Who's left? If you've got Israel in the church, who's left is the world. Isaiah also has a message that applies to the world. Every nation, all peoples everywhere. This shouldn't be hard to imagine because in Isaiah chapter 45 last week, we read the verse from Isaiah that said, To me every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It was actually said a little bit differently in Isaiah, but I know the Philippians version really well. But Isaiah says, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's part of Isaiah's prophecy. It applies to the world. Believing or not, Isaiah's got a message for the world. So I'm going to open it up for quick comment questions here. Is this clear? Does anybody... This is a, a paradigm, a way to understand all of the Bible no matter where you're reading. You have to ask before what it means to you, what did it mean to the original audience? All right, we will move forward. Chapter 52... 1 to 12, we're going to go through four questions, and this is going to be very much participatory, except I realize I'm already running out of time, so we'll, we'll see. So if you have an answer, I am eager to hear your answer, but don't sit on your hands. Get it out there. Uh, we're going to go, we're going to read these verses. We're going to answer four questions in this order. We're going to ask first, why might these verses be appropriate on Palm Sunday? I would say this is my Palm Sunday text. Why would I choose Isaiah 52? It's not a gospel. Why would I choose this text as a good Palm Sunday text? Question two, what is at the very heart of this passage? What is central to this passage? Because we've gone through uh, chapters 40 to 45. I can usually reduce it to uh, a three or four, five word phrase. We've, we had, behold your God. I think was in Isaiah chapter 40. In chapter 41 was, uh, but fear not. That was the central message. What is the central message of 52 verses 1 to 12? Third question, how do these verses fit or echo what we've already learned in Isaiah? We've just skipped from chapter 45 up to 52, but 52 is repeating some of the same themes and some of the same things that were important previously are still important in chapter 52. I want to see continuity, how 52 fits with what we already know. The last question will be, what strikes you as particularly interesting or significant or meaningful? As you've, uh, if you've read this text in advance, maybe you've picked out some things. I noticed this theme. I noticed this repetition. What is it that jumps out at you? as important in those first 12 verses. So let's read those 12 verses. I will read them. You can follow along. The first question will be, why is this appropriate on Palm Sunday? So be ready for that. Verse 1 reads, 
Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians, Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. There's our 12 verses. Our first question, why are those verses appropriate for Palm Sunday? What's the connection? Joash. And who's the message given to in 52? Who's it directed to? Uh, it is Israel, but even more specific than Israel, Jerusalem in verse 1. It's specifically addressed to Jerusalem in verse 1. Is it, what kind of, how would you describe this news to Jerusalem? Good news, right? This is good news. This is great news. In fact, I would say the pinnacle of this news comes in the last part of verse 8 where they're celebrating the return of the Lord to Zion. The return of the Lord to Zion. If I, if I put that in the context of the gospel narratives, uh, when Jesus goes in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they're saying, Hail, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. They're celebrating the return of the Lord to Zion. And it's triumphant. And it's a celebration. And they're filled with joy. This is a, it's a wonderful depiction in Isaiah 52 as to what Jesus is doing as he comes into Jerusalem. What I want you to know right now is their expectation of a reigning king is biblical. It's in fulfillment of prophecy. It's in fulfillment of Isaiah 52. They have every reason to believe the yoke of oppression will be cast off. 
and they will live triumphantly in the goodness and the grace and the peace that only the Lord God can bring. But what happens after Palm Sunday? Do they realize the fullness of this great prophecy of deliverance, of being redeemed, of being set free? What happens instead? It's a real question. It's the crucifixion. Instead of Palm Sunday, what happens five days later is Christ dies on a cross. What follows Isaiah 52, those first 12 verses? The last three verses of 52 and Isaiah 53, a crucifixion. A stricken, smitten, and afflicted, struck by God so that sheep would be delivered from their sins. It fits perfectly with, with the, you've got an expectation of deliverance and redemption and triumph. But the basis for that deliverance, the basis of the promise requires a crucifixion. It requires a sacrificial death. Somebody has to pay to deliver Israel from their sins. So that's where we will be, hopefully, the plan is, we will be there on Good Friday to establish the basis for a very positive promise in Isaiah 52. What's at the very heart of the passage? If we're going to reduce those 12 verses to like, it, this is what is central to the whole thing, what would it be? That's a good message. That's a good message. But there's something underlying that must be before that. That's a good message. That's a good message. But there's something else And this is obviously somewhat subjective, but I think there's something more central to the entire 12 verses than that. Redemption's a good message. It's a good message. But all those messages are lost unless you've got this other core thing. Sonia or Michelle. That's a good message. that's really good. We're going to talk about that a little bit later because that's repeated four times. Every The reason why any of this comes to fruition is because four times God declares, I declare it. It's going to, my word. God completes his promises based upon his own character, his own power. It doesn't, I absolutely cringe when I hear some sermon or sometimes I had a professor when I was at Lincoln, some Talk about how Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned his disciples, and now the fate of the church rests, or the fate of the gospel rests upon these 12 men. Oh my goodness. Nothing could be further from the truth. God isn't wringing his hands hoping that we get it right or the whole thing is off. God is going to accomplish his purposes because of his word, not because of my faithfulness. Though I'm called to faithfulness. Uh, who else had their hand up wanting to give it a go? Our God reigns. Verse 7b, the end of verse 7, the best news possible that you could possibly give anybody is our God reigns. If God doesn't reign, there is no call to salvation. If our God doesn't reign, there is no peace. There is no goodness. We can wish for the best and hope for the best, but if God doesn't reign, it all falls for naught. That's the heart of those 12 verses. Let's, uh, he says in verse uh, 7a, the first part of the verse, you know, how, what does it say about, I forget. 
I know it's the song and then I forget. Uh, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. Our God reigns. Peace. Happiness, which is a horrible translation. And salvation depends on our God reigning. If God doesn't reign, there is no peace. If our God doesn't reign, there is no salvation. If our God doesn't reign, that word is not happiness. I don't know why. Like, I don't know why that works. It's the word goodness. And it starts off, it's word used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. When God is creating in Genesis 1, he looks at what he creates and he says, it's good. He's not saying, I, I created this and now I'm happy. It's good. It's a good thing. It's proclaiming the goodness of God in all that he does. The messenger announces peace and goodness and salvation because our God reigns. It all depends on that. Let's uh, apply it to our concentric circles. What does it mean to Isaiah's generation That our God reigns. What does it mean to them? Here's what it means in Isaiah chapter 41. It means, though you pass through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. It means, though you walk through the fire, it will not consume you. Because our God reigns. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have any troubles. It doesn't mean you're not going to experience any, any heartache, any sorrow. Isaiah's generation is getting, they're getting beat up by the Assyrians going to be carried into exile by the Babylonians, but guess what? Your God reigns. Your God reigns. What does it mean for those returning from, from Babylon? Just like he promised he would do. Just like God promised, unless you can remove the starry hosts, the sun, moon, and the sky, you will be my chosen people. And I've got a plan for you, and it's a plan to profit you. It's a plan to bless you and not to destroy you. Because our God reigns. What does it mean for eschatological Israel? And ultimate future descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It means one day the nation will look upon him whom they have crucified, pierced. And they will mourn in repentance and believe Jesus is their Messiah. Because your God reigns. What does it mean for the church? That our God reigns. It means when Christ, uh, before he ascended into heaven, and he said, Lo, I'm with you. Behold, I'm with you always. Even unto the end of the age, Christ will never abandon his church, collectively. It doesn't mean every physical building or every gathered group of people will persevere until the end. We'll be scattered. We may move around. Churches, buildings come and go, but Christ never abandons his church. What does it mean to me individually? Christ never abandons me. Doesn't mean I won't have to walk through water or fire. But because my God reigns, he's in control. He's in control. What does it mean for the world that your, that our God reigns? It means every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Because our God reigns. That's the central message of those 12 verses. It doesn't play out just like we expect. It didn't play out like the Jews expected when they're waving their palm branches saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and who are from Sunday school, who are expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. Immediately. They're thinking it's all said and done. All of God's plans and purposes for redemption are going to be completed by this time next week. And it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way. 
And it doesn't happen the way I think it should work sometimes in my life or the church's life either. But our God reigns. And he knows what he's doing, even when I don't have to understand. I love what J. Vernon McGee says about Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good. J. Vernon McGee said, it doesn't say we understand it. It says we know it, because God said so. I know all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Third question, how do these verses fit and echo previous themes? And I'm really running out of time now. This is, ah. Yeah, I'll do what I can. Anybody? Did, any, what, what themes do you remember from those first six chapters we've done that are, again, in chapter 52? Does anything jump out at you? I've got one big one and a side one. The main one, the, I would say, one of the themes that we discovered just last week in Isaiah chapter five, uh, 45 is a great reversal of fortunes. It's a great reversal of fortunes. You have previously experienced these difficult times, these oppressive times, these beaten down times, but there's coming a day when it will all be reversed. That's what we saw in Isaiah 45 last week. It's the same thing we find in these first six verses this week. If I were to reread maybe some of those verses. Oh, you've got a... Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come unto you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Gentiles aren't going to keep trampling down. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That's what they wanted on Palm Sunday. In Isaiah chapter 52, he's anticipating it and prophesying of it. So there's a great reversal of fortunes, and he tells them, awake, awake. When you repeat something like that, you're emphasizing something. And here's uh, one of the unfortunate things, by jumping from chapter 45 to 52, is this isn't the first time he said, awake, awake. In the immediate context, in 51, he said, awake, awake, twice. And so there's a building story and drama that culminates in 52, Awake, Awake. Let's look at the first one, chapter 51, verse 9. I realize I don't have my Bible. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 9. And this Awake, Awake isn't spoken by the Lord. This Awake, Awake is spoken by Israel. So Israel says in 51.9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long, long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing? Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The first awake, awake is Israel, crying out to God, God, wake up! Israel's crying out to God, Lord, we're being oppressed! Lord, we're being, 
We're being beaten down. We're being afflicted. Lord, wake up. Remember what you did in Egypt? Remember how you heard our cries and you delivered us? Have you ever been in a spot where you ask God to awake? Because you feel like you're being beaten down and somehow God doesn't see? So God responds. In verse 12, God, the Lord responds, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? Remember Isaiah chapter 40, it starts off, the whole, the whole second half of Isaiah is about comfort. And the Lord says, I'm the, I'm the Lord who comforts you. I'm the Lord who comforts you. And then the second awake awake is at 51, 17. And this is unfortunate. Again, I have no idea what translators are thinking. I think the Bible's big and they're trying to be quick. But it says, wake yourself, wake yourself, which is the same idea, but it's the exact same word in the Hebrew. And if you really want to catch that he, it's being repeated like it was in 51 verse 9, whoops, you would translate it, awake, awake. So 51 verse 17, now the Lord responds back to Israel, who's saying, Lord, wake up. The Lord replies, wake, awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering, there is none to guide her, that is Jerusalem, among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord and rebuke of the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this. You who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you may ha- and you have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. So the Lord says to Israel, awake, awake. Why? Why does he tell Israel to awake, awake? They're calling to God to wake up. God tells Israel, wake, awake, awake. Why? There's one, it's explicit in the text, and then there's one that's implied that you'll see in a minute. Why is Israel told to wake up? What do they need to know? What's being communicated to them? Verse 22, 51-22, the middle part of the verse, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. Right now, Jerusalem, Israel, is staggering like a drunken woman, staggering under God's blows of discipline. But the Lord says, Awake, awake, I'm going to take away my cup of wrath. I'm going to take away my cup of discipline. I'm going to take away that which is beating you down, and I'm going to give it to your oppressors. Those that have been troubling you, those that are trampling you down, they're going to drink that cup. 
Because Israel's redemption draws nigh. Israel's redemption draws nigh. Which takes us to the third awake awake in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 52. Jerusalem, dress up. Redemption has come. The Lord is delivering his people. Jerusalem will be the holy city that she's been promised to be in chapter 52. So you've got those a series of those three awake awakes. Then in verses 11 and 12, depart, depart. Depart from your sin. Depart from your wickedness. Depart from your idolatries. Live like you belong in the kingdom. Live like you're the holy people chosen of God. Habakkuk says the just will live by faith. We don't always experience the deliverance of the Lord like we desire. But the just will live by faith. We will believe God's promises of deliverance and holiness and completing a good plan, whether it's our, whether our present circumstances uh, feel like it or not. The Lord's deliverance of Israel is recognized by and relevant to the entire world in verses 9 and 10. I'll finish reading those two verses again. Chapter 52, verse 9. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's what we found in 45. As the Lord fulfills his purposes of redemption in Israel, it has, a, it has an effect on all the rest of the world. They see what God has done. It is plain God keeps his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God, faithful to his own, faithful to his promises. And all of the world enters into that celebration, at least those who believe. Um, I thought we could go farther, but that's it. Uh, Any comments or questions? I don't know what I'll do with the rest. I guess we'll figure that out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. One of, one of the, uh, uh, I don't know if he's even still living, way back when I was just a boy growing up on a KSTL radio out of St. Louis, they did a lot of Christian programming. I don't know if it was exclusive or not, because I was a kid and I didn't listen to Christian radio back then. I listened to WLS, shows you where I was at. But at any rate, uh, Holmes Moore, a pastor of Baptist Bible Church in Maplewood, Missouri, and he used to have a conference. I went down to his conference for a good number of years, college age and when I was first married. But Holmes Moore, one of the points he made is uh, the Bible says when God created his original creation, that the stars are the work of his fingers. But when God saves a sinner, it's the work of his mighty right arm. And I think saving a sinner doesn't require nearly as much as creating the starry hosts, which are as far and beyond what the eye could possibly see. But by comparison, what God did in salvation is much more to be celebrated than God's work in creation. We celebrate creation. We celebrate a God who creates. But revelation is filled with praise for a God who redeems. The work of his mighty right arm. Somebody else? Lori? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, the Lord, the Lord God is God's name is never mentioned in the Book of Esther. Jews are mentioned fifty-seven times. Uh, 
that's part of the hiddenness of God, that God is working even when we don't understand. That's typically what commentators would say. God is working even when we don't see him working. He's preserving his people through Esther, through Mordecai, even when we don't see him doing that. So the name is hidden, but his, his grace is not hidden. It's still being woven into the tapestry of Israel, even in exile, in Esther. Yeah, and I imagine it was—I imagine it was even a mixed bag. How many Jews uh, had already sold out, but they were still Jews. Uh, you know, in, in Hitler's day, many of the Jews that Hitler was trying to exterminate—they weren't observant Jews. Some, I'm sure, a lot were, but not all were. Some were just secular, living secular lives, but they were still. Uh, fell into the wrath of Hitler, who sought to exterminate them all. It was similar in Esther's day, where King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, intended to eliminate all of the Jews. I don't care who you're worshiping, you're, you are a uh, bothersome people, you're an obstacle to progress. It sounds to me like the way our culture is going, where if you are a Bible-believing Christian, churches that hold to the standards and the truths of God's word, will be seen as an obstacle to progress uh, in our society. And we will lose freedoms and privileges that we have long enjoyed my entire life. Unless God grants a revival, it's coming. It's, we're, we're an obstacle to progress because the morality of Scripture goes against the grain of the morality that is being uh, propagated in our culture. It's happened before, and if we can learn any lesson from history, it will happen again, barring God intervening with another season of mercy and grace. Somebody else? This is so fascinating. So this is Palm Sunday. This is the celebration of 52. And then right on the heels of that is the servant of the Lord has got to suffer and be afflicted for any of those promises in 52 to be realized. If, if sin isn't born and taken away, there is no rejoicing in Jerusalem. There is no holy city. Somebody's got to pay the price. But doesn't it say they're redeemed without price? Didn't we read those verses? Huh? I think it says without money. Without money? Uh, without money. Redeemed without money. So how are they redeemed if it's not with money? It's not with silver and gold you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, according to Peter. They're redeemed, but not with silver and gold. Let's be dismissed in prayer.